welcome to the McGill Journal of Law and Health podcast and our mini-series focused on the deferral of men who have sex with men, or MSN, from blood donation in Canada. I'm Nick Whitfield, the journal's editor-in-chief, and joining me today is Dr. Mindy Goldman, Medical Director of Donor and Clinical Services at Canadian Blood Services, the CBS in Ottawa. Dr. Goldman completed a medical degree at the University of Montreal and its subsequent training in internal medicine here at McGill University and hematology and transfusion medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton. Dr. Goldman has over 25 years of experience working in transfusion medicine in Canada. She is responsible for donor criteria and policies related to blood donors and immunohematology at the CBS and is involved in epidemiology studies related to donor and recipient risk. Since 2010, Dr. Goldman has been actively involved in research relating to the MSM deferral. Dr. Goldman, thanks for joining the MJLH podcast and welcome. To begin with, could you talk about your role as Medical Director of Canadian Blood Services? What are your responsibilities? Hi, Nick. So I'd like to start just by thanking you for including me on your podcast series on uh, what I think is an important topic. So I am the medical director for donor and clinical services at Canadian Blood Services, and I've been in this position for over 15 years. Most relevant for this discussion, I'm responsible for our blood donor eligibility criteria, and I also provide oversight for our epidemiology and surveillance group and medical microbiology. So those groups are critical in analyzing infectious risks in our donors and providing evidence for possible changes in our deferral policy. Blood is regulated by Health Canada, and I'm sure we'll get to that later in the interview. So I'm quite involved in meetings with Health Canada and submission of information to support changes that we'd like to make to Health Canada. And then finally, on the research side, I've been involved in several studies that are part of the CBS Hema-Quebec MSM research program funded by the federal government. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more as well. Thank you. Before we look in more detail at the men who have sex with men or MSM deferral, could you say something about CBS eligibility criteria in general? In the broadest terms, why does the CBS defer people from blood donation? So people are deferred for a donation for three main reasons. Uh, one is we do a hemoglobin check on people. So that's the finger stick uh, if you've ever tried to donate blood. So if uh, your hemoglobin level is too low, the donation could be harmful to you and your product may not uh, be adequate. So that's one major reason for deferral. The second deferral category is people who have an underlying medical condition that puts them at a higher risk for a complication when they donate. An example might be a donor who had a recent heart attack or stroke, for example. And then the third group, which is of most interest today, is people whose donation might put a recipient at higher risk of acquiring an infectious disease that's transmissible by transfusion. So if we look at how many people we're deferring at Canadian Blood Services, we defer about 6% of people temporarily based on their hemoglobin screen, and then about 8% of people for all the other reasons that I mentioned, either temporarily or permanently will be deferred. 
And what's the process for blood donation and specifically for testing blood donors? Right. So but when somebody wants to donate blood for the first time, we have a pamphlet they're supposed to read that explains to them what's going to happen, <laughs> the associated risks for them, the tests we're going to do on their donation, and why we ask about various risk behaviors and why it's important for them to answer all those questions. We then take the donor's temperature. We perform that little hemoglobin screen that I mentioned. And the donor fills out an electronic questionnaire of about 60 questions. And then uh, that questionnaire will then be reviewed in a private booth with a screener. And the screener will go over the donor's answers with them and determine if they're eligible to donate that day or not. And then the person will donate. That, that will take about 10 minutes. And then after donation, um, the donor will go on their way and the blood We'll go back to our uh, facilities where uh, we will send the sample to be tested to our testing laboratories. And the blood itself is going to be processed into components, so separated into different parts. And it's going to be held until we have the results of the tests. When the tests are all good, then these components are going to be sent to hospital blood banks when they order them from us and they'll be transfused to patients as they're needed. So that's, that's usually what happens for a whole blood donation, which is about uh, like a half a liter of blood that people are donating. Some donors donate just one component of their blood, such as plasma, which is the liquid part of the blood. And that's a little bit more complicated in terms of the actual donation, because we use a machine at the time of donation to remove just that component and return the rest of the blood to the donor. But everything else is the same. The pamphlet, the questionnaire, the testing, et cetera, is all, is all the same as for a whole blood donation. What about the regulation of donor eligibility and blood centers in Canada? How are questions and criteria reviewed and changed? So uh, since the late 90s, both Canadian Blood Services and Hema-Quebec are regulated by Health Canada. That's kind of our FDA equivalent. Um, and we're considered manufacturers of biological substances, uh, the same as the people who make vaccines. So what does that kind of mean? It really means in uh, using standardized approved processes to do everything. So as I mentioned, there's a standard donor questionnaire. It's used for all donors. There's a slightly abbreviated questionnaire for frequent donors. Questions tend to divide donors into high and low risk buckets and donors in a higher risk bucket are deferred. The collection staff have a donor criteria manual and that instructs them about donor eligibility and deferral time period. So it's quite different from an individual medical risk assessment. Uh, for example, a donor who spent time in an area considered to be malaria risk is going to be deferred for three months after they come back to Canada, regardless of you know, what they did when they were there. And then if, if we want to change something about the criteria, we will have to do a submission to Health Canada if it's a change that might affect recipient safety or the quality of the blood component. Uh, and we will have to gain approval before uh, we will be able to implement the change. So more or less supporting data will be 
required, as you might imagine, depending on the type of change that we're proposing. Thank you. So moving on to the MSM deferral, could you explain what the current deferral policy is and why is it in place? So in our current deferral policy, if you're registered as a male donor, we're going to be asking you, in the last three months, have you had sex with a man? And if the answer is yes, the donor will be deferred for three months since their last sexual contact. And the reason for that is in Canada, uh, we use the data published by the Public Health Agency of Canada on risk categories for HIV. So in the latest report, which was published last year, men who have sex with men account for about 45% of people living with HIV in Canada, and about 41% of people newly infected with HIV in the past year. And since MSM are approximately, you know, two or three percent of the overall Canadian population, you can see that they're disproportionately affected by HIV. So we do perform sensitive tests for HIV and other infections such as hepatitis B and hepatitis C on each donation. However, there's a period of time when a donor could be infectious and yet the tests are negative. That's called the window period. And also our system is very precautionary and has kind of overlapping layers of safety. So that's why in Canada, not necessarily in all countries, but in Canada, MSM are a high risk group for HIV and they're deferred with our current criteria. One question I've heard raised in casual conversations and discussions is about the possible influence of a market of blood products on decisions about donor eligibility. And I think the logic is that the prejudice of a particular purchaser or just stereotypes about gay men and HIV could motivate the MSM deferral. What's your response to that concern? Well, we do not sell any blood components in Canada. So, so that is not a concern for us. However, we do send plasma, which I mentioned before, the liquid part of the blood to other companies to be manufactured for future manufacture into a blood components such as immunoglobulins and albumin. And those companies do ask us what our deferral criteria are and do have some influence over what they might be. So far, we have managed to convince them that if criteria are approved by Health Canada, then that should suffice for us because the plasma that we sent to them comes back to us in products that are only used to transfuse Canadian patients. So it's more of a concern for companies or blood suppliers that collect plasma, send it for fractionation, and then the fractionation products are going to be sold or distributed in different countries, not just in the country of origin. So then there's a tendency to kind of go to the most stringent possible criteria on everything so that the product can be sold everywhere. But fortunately for us, because our products from Canadian donors come back to us, we are not as constrained by those types of policies or that 
that type of thinking. And it's true, isn't it, that the deferral policy has changed over the years. I wondered if you could actually talk about how it's evolved since it was first introduced. So uh, the policy was first introduced in the 1980s, before you were born, Nick, uh, when it was observed that AIDS, so uh, a term that we don't use that much, but acquired immunodeficiency syndrome was more common in gay men. And um, then the virus causing AIDS, HIV, was then discovered. And obviously, there's been an explosion of knowledge about HIV and uh, introduction of testing, first in 1990, and uh, also introduction of automation and reduction of errors in testing and processing. So a lot has happened since the late 80s. And the policy has evolved over time. So when it was first introduced, it was a deferral for any sex with another male since 1977. And it has evolved over time to be a five-year deferral, then a 12-month deferral, and now a three-month deferral since uh, last sex with another man. So each change has required a Health Canada submission, including sort of risk modeling to show that we don't think there'll be an appreciable increase in risk, consultation with high interest groups, including both LGBTQ plus groups and community groups and patient groups that require frequent transfusion, such as Thalassemia Canada. And we've had all of these groups write letters of support to Health Canada in support of each change. Uh, we've also included relevant international experience because policies have evolved internationally too, not just in Canada. And then uh, post-implementation monitoring for safety, uh, similar to what you would do with a new medication. How are you going to assess after you make your change or after you put a new drug on the market that uh, the change was safe? And so we've had to provide plans there too. So we have evolved over time. And it, change always seems slow, but there have been incremental changes over the years. In a 2019 research paper in the peer-reviewed journal Transfusion, you and your co-authors mentioned the influence of LGBTQ and student activists in prompting revisions to the MSM deferrals in Canada. Could you say something more about the influence of activism on the CBS in general and on the MSM deferral in particular? So, you know, Canadian blood services does not exist in a vacuum, and our entire blood system is based on volunteer donors. So this involves recruitment of younger donors to replace older people who are no longer able to donate. And obviously, part of safety is ensuring an adequate blood supply. So it's very important to us that potential donors see us as evolving our policy as the science evolves and see that we're trying to be as minimally restrictive as possible while ensuring safety for the patients who depend on us. So I believe that advocacy has also led to more resources being put in the system to establish an evidence basis for moving forward on criteria changes, such as the federal government's support of the MSM research program. So it's quite a bit broader than just Canadian services. Another kind of interesting thing in Canada, I think, has been because of our history when thousands of people 
were infected with HIV and HCV in the late 80s by contaminated blood and blood products. And then the legacy of the Creever Commission of Inquiry into Blood. Patient advocacy has also been important in Canada. So uh, involvement of both LGBTQ plus groups and community groups and patient groups in the change process has probably been kind of one of the defining features of policy changes in Canada, which is a little different from some other countries. Thank you. Uh, You've also stated in published research that the MSM deferral is probably the most contentious of all eligibility criteria uh, in Canada and elsewhere, I, I imagine. I think the first question that comes to mind for a lot of people is about HIV testing. You've already spoken to that a bit. Today, HIV tests are increasingly accurate. Why doesn't the CBS just rely exclusively on blood tests for determining donor eligibility? That's a very common question, and it's a good one. A part of it is the window period that we spoke about, that no test can always detect the virus immediately after infection. Part of it is the multi-tier safety processes where we rely on educating donors, why it's important to answer the question, deferral of higher risk donors and testing. You know, obviously when no testing was available, we were relying solely on the donor questionnaire and deferral. If we had a perfect test, in theory, you wouldn't need to do any donor screening. Alternatively, if there were manufacturing processes that zapped all infectious agents, in theory, you would not need either donor selection or testing. But in practice, the system is very precautionary, partly because of the history, because actions were not taken quickly enough to address emerging threats. And if you look at all other blood systems, such as the US, Australia, European countries with similar blood systems, they all are in a very similar place where they have both a donor questionnaire with donor criteria and testing in place. And this is also true for plasma donors, where the plasma will undergo many steps to reduce pathogens in the manufacturing process. There still are questionnaires asking donors about risk questions, and the donors are still having testing at at each donation. In the early 2000s, I remember activists in the UK wanting to reduce the length of the MSM deferral. That was the main objective for a time. In the UK and in Canada, as you mentioned, that's actually happened, but it hasn't eliminated the controversy. It seems like opposition has shifted from the length of the deferral period toward the breadth of the MSM categorization itself. Is that an accurate impression? In your experience, how has opposition to the MSM deferral evolved? Well, I think in a highly regulated precautionary system, changes will always be incremental. So over the years, we have always seen the changes that we're making as incremental steps towards more inclusiveness and not kind of the end destination where we want to end up. And we've been fortunate in that we have had many LGBTQ plus activists that have been with us on this journey for many years. And in recent years, we have brought together representatives of both patient groups and LGBTQ plus groups so that they can better understand each other's perspectives. I think when you actually talk to somebody and you understand how a policy affects them, 
and how it makes them feel, you're less likely to see the world in as quite so black and white as you may when you're only looking at it from your own perspective. So we've also explained to people the processes involved in making change in our system. So I think when you take a step back, we, we made no progress at all in changing criteria from the late 1980s till 2013, a period of over 20 years where, you know, fantastic testing was introduced. Um, you know, there were many, many societal changes and everything, and really we were not able to change anything. And then since 2013, we've moved from that kind of permanent deferral to a three-month deferral. So I think the pace of change has definitely accelerated, and I think it will keep accelerating in the next few years. Perhaps the most controversial aspect of the MSM deferral is that it excludes people whose blood poses no threat to blood transfusion safety. Even the current three-month deferral will encompass probably many gay men who just don't have HIV. And it's clear from the CBS website that other eligibility criteria operate in a similar way. Any person who has taken money or drugs for sex since 1977 is indefinitely deferred. The same for any person who has used intravenous street drugs. In a way, those policies are even stricter than the MSM deferral because they're indefinite. But what they share in common is that each seems to exclude individuals who don't pose a threat to blood transfusion safety. And policymakers clearly understand this. So what, if any, is the rationale for deliberately overbroad criteria like the MSM deferral? So we know that the questions we ask defer many safe donors. In other words, they cast a very broad net and they're not very specific. And it, it's partly the nature of a screening process in a manufacturing environment where you're asking very simple, standardized questions, quite a lot of them actually, in a, in a short period of time, to try to just get at a very low risk group for many different variables is quite different from an individual risk assessment, such as what you might have done in a physician's office. So our screeners are not able to ask additional questions to assess risk. So again, coming to a simple uh, analogy, like looking at malaria risk, if I travel to a malaria risk area, my risk of getting malaria will depend on many factors, like what season of the year is it? How careful am I about going out at night? Am I using bug spray? How long am I staying there? Am I uh, camping or am I in a four-star resort that's spraying for bugs? But basically, if I go to donate blood, none of this is going to be assessed and I'm going to have the same three-month referral from my return. So, you know, the other part is just the system, as we've mentioned, it's very, very precautionary. So it's leaning on the side of caution and making sure that higher risk people are not accepted, recognizing that this involves deferring many safe donors. And since we transfuse over 1 million blood components a year in Canada, even at what sounds like a very small risk increment, let's say something that's going to happen one in a million, that means that every year somebody's going to be infected. So it is very precautionary. I mean, that being said, I think the ultimate goal is really to move away from a purely time-based deferral for MSM and have a more nuanced a risk approach for that criterion, as for many of the other criteria that you mentioned. 
Another real point of controversy for a lot of people is that the MSM deferral is very unspecific. It's concerned with the risk of HIV, but it doesn't distinguish between high risk and low risk sexual practices between men. So for instance, there's a big risk difference between say two men engaging in unprotected anal sex on the one hand, and then on the other, oral sex between two men who are both on PrEP. And PrEP here refers to pre-exposure prophylaxis, medications that have proven effective in preventing the spread of HIV and used uh, by an increasing number of gay men. Why doesn't the CBS deferral take differences like this into account? Well, I, I agree. I think this is definitely a problem with the current policy, uh, that it's very broad, broad and it doesn't take differences into account. It's a very simplistic way of uh, splitting people into risk categories. Since you mentioned PrEP therapy, I should say that there is a separate question for donors about taking PrEP or PEP. And this is because of concern that donors on these medications who become infected anyway may have a prolonged window period. So in other words, a period when they may be infected, but the tests do not pick up their infection. And so again, just another instance where criteria for blood donation are a little different from public health messaging about risk reduction, because transmission by blood may be quite a bit easier than a transmission by sexual contact. I hoped uh, you could talk a bit more about the term men who have sex with men. The Ontario Superior Court of Justice said, contrary to the CBS, the term men who have sex with men is a proxy term for sexual orientation. So it's just another way of saying gay men. Um, I'll admit I was a bit surprised when I, I read their ruling because, as I understood it, MSN had been introduced in order to replace the, the more unspecific term gay men in the early 1990s. Why was it chosen by the CBS and why has it persisted as the term of choice despite now being considered synonymous with gay men? So early questions in the U.S. in the 1980s, when we knew about AIDS but we didn't even know about HIV, use terms such as gay men to defer higher risk donors. But once testing was introduced and there were still people who were HIV positive, these people were interviewed to try and see what were their risk factors and why had they not answered yes to a question and been deferred from donation. So it was found at that point that some men who had sex with another man did not self-identify themselves as gay. And so that's when the criterion was changed in the U.S., followed by everybody else, basically, to this kind of odd terminology where you're really asking about a behavior, like sex with another man. It's very explicit about the behavior. That's kind of the origin of that a term. And I agree that the majority of these people may identify themselves as gay, but others may not. They may be bisexual or they may have experimented, but they don't see themselves as gay. And still others may have been assaulted or abused. So it is a term that is in our jargon. And, um, you know, I, I definitely recognize that it's not a term in broad use on the societal level. But that was the origin of it. And it's, it's hard to move away from it in the questionnaire, at least. In terms of possible alternatives to the MSM deferral, 
there are some countries, aren't there, that defer blood donors based on high-risk sexual activities, regardless of the gender of, of the other partner. Could you say something about those policies? Which countries have them and how do they operate? Yeah, so there are several European countries, uh, including Italy and Spain, that have had different policies for quite a number of years. We need to say that there's other differences between those blood systems and Canada. So they are less highly regulated. They don't have a national system. So their approaches are quite variable based on different blood centers. And they are using physicians to perform donor screening. So they may be able to ask additional questions to determine risk, which does not fit into our very rigid manufacturing model. The results of their testing are not as good as in Canada in terms of HIV rates in their donors. So in particular, there are donors who have a test pattern indicating very recent infection, infection in the two weeks or so before donation, which to us is sort of like a near miss. <laughs> um, and in modeling studies, the risk of transmission per product is therefore higher when you plug in the numbers that they have published in their donors. So that's not what we hope to achieve in Canada, and that would not be approved by our regulator. That doesn't mean that some elements of these approaches uh, could not be adopted here, but we will require more evidence about the safety of those approaches, and we'll have to adapt them to safe implementation in Canada. And have those deferrals or the deferrals based on high-risk sexual activities, have they proven to be controversial, like the MSM deferral? I'm not really certain about this. I mean, those changes were imposed by government decree, by laws, basically, in Italy and Spain. So I'm not aware of how much stakeholder consultation, either with the LGBTQ plus and community groups or patient groups took place or the history of blood systems in these countries because you know the history puts a very big shadow on how people perceive the safety or the trust in the blood system over time. You've spoken to this a bit already but are such deferrals a realistic prospect for Canada? Well I think that our policies will continue to evolve these MSM research projects uh, will continue to provide more evidence, as will implementation of changes in countries with similar blood systems. So both the UK and the Netherlands will be implementing alternative criteria, they say later this year. So that will provide more data that will be very helpful to us. And we are working on implementation of alternative criteria for source plasma donation at the moment. So finally, in your opinion, what's the probable future of the MSM deferral in Canada? The next step, as I said, for us at Canadian Blood Services is the implementation of alternative criteria for source plasma donors. And we're starting at two sites, London and Calgary, where we collect source plasma. And as I mentioned, there's additional manufacturing steps involved for source plasma that inactivate pathogens. So that adds yet another layer of safety to the testing and the donor questionnaire. 
And several of the research projects have focused on source plasma donation, including projects in London and Calgary. So uh, what we're proposing to do is rather than deferring all sexually active a man who has sex with men, we'll take a more nuanced risk approach. So if a male donor answers yes to sex with a man in the next three months, we're going to be asking two additional questions about a new sexual partner. And if uh, the donor and his partner have only had sex with each other in the last three months. So a donor who's had one partner and is in a mutually exclusive relationship will be eligible to donate. So you can see that we're trying to come to a really very low risk population of people there. And we have discussed this with both LGBTQ plus and patient high interest groups. We've performed risk modeling. We've met with Health Canada several times and we will be putting in submission documents in the next month and hope to get Health Canada's approval and uh, implement in the fall. So if implementation goes well, we will roll out to other sites where we collect source plasma. So again, that's just a start, but it will provide us with more data that will be helpful then to see if these criteria could be extended to whole blood donors where we don't have those extra manufacturing safety steps. And we'll also be following, of course, international developments and the results of the MSM research program. So I am confident that this policy will continue to evolve over time and will be less restrictive than it is now while maintaining safety for patients relying on us. Dr. Goldman, thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. And I hope your listeners enjoy this podcast and others in the series. <laughs> thank you.